Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the world of pain in which all new planning information is found, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. How the government is proposing to change the planning system following the backbench levelling up and regeneration bill rebellion. The ministerial moratorium on onshore wind development in England is also apparently over. We look at how the government intends to change the status quo. And the Secretary of State's consent for the Cumbrian coal mine. How did Michael Gove justify his approval? And in our deep dive section, we'll be exploring what we learned from our planning consultancy market report, which we began publishing last week. By the end of the show, you should know enough to win the Office Planorac of the Year contest. So, for the last time this year, time to grit our teeth and face the music. Ready to go in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106. Not the most festive looking of places. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, in our previous podcast, we discussed the government pausing the passage of its levelling up and regeneration bill in response to amendments put forward by the former Environment Secretary, Theresa Villiers, that would make centrally set house building targets advisory and not mandatory. So this amendment was supported by about 60 Tory MPs and was giving the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and Michael Gove a major headache. Since then, it's been reported that the government was in discussion with the rebel MPs to find a way forward. And last week, the Housing Department made an announcement on a whole range of planning changes, which was accompanied by a written ministerial statement by Michael Gove and a letter from Gove to MPs. So there's lots of changes announced. The key ones were around how local housing need is calculated and how local plans are examined. So... How has the government responded specifically on the sort of so-called housing target issue? So a statement from the housing department last Monday evening said the government plans to introduce new flexibilities to reflect local circumstances, in its words, in the way that councils meet the housing requirements, what's known as local housing need, which is um, set by the government's standard method of assessing housing need. And these new flexibilities, according to the um, statement from Delurk, include taking account of an area's character and local density. And there's more details in a written ministerial statement from Michael Gove the following day. And he said he wanted to retain a method for calculating local housing need figures, aka the standard method, but consult on changes. He said, I believe the plan making process for housing has to start with a number. The number should, however, be an advisory starting point, a guide that is not mandatory. And he went on to say that it will be up to local authorities working with their communities to determine how many homes can actually be built, taking account what should be protected in each area. And he went on to mention this could be green belts, national parks, the character of an area or heritage assets. And it would also be up to them to increase the proportion of affordable housing if they wish. And then he added that as part of these changes, he will instruct the planning inspector that they should no longer override sensible local decision making, which is sensitive to and reflects local constraints and concerns. Overall, this amounts to a rebalancing of the relationship between local councils and the planning inspector, 
and will give communities a greater say in what is built in their neighbourhood. And then he wrote a letter to MPs in which he gave more details. And he said that when a local plan is being assessed at examination, a number of factors will be taken into account. And without going into too much detail, these included what he called genuine constraints. So, and he mentioned national parks, heritage restrictions, areas of high flood risk. Greenbelt, he said, will be clear that local planning authorities are not expected to review the greenbelt to deliver housing. And character was another one. And he said local authorities would not be expected to build developments at densities that would be wholly out of character with existing areas or would lead to a significant change of character. They also said that inspectors will be required to take a more reasonable approach to authorities that have come forward with plans that take account of the concerns of the local community by taking a more pragmatic approach at examination. He seems to be, um, I mean, there was a, the rebels made a, a lot of the fact that Gove had said the new approach to using the, the standard method for assessing housing need would be advisory as if this was a change. But it, it's always been essentially advisory, as I understand it. It's been something which is a, a starting point for local authorities to use to come to a, a sort of housing goal. And they then have to factor in various constraints. And if I'm understanding what's happened correctly here is that what he has done, although we're yet to see the detail, is create a couple more constraints which local authorities can legitimately point to as reasons for not attaining that figure that would be produced by the standard method. You know, for example, effect on the character of an area. Yes, so it's not as different as it sounds from the status quo. So as you say, these local housing need figures have never been mandatory and councils can already take into account some constraints such as green belts or areas of outstanding natural beauty. But beyond that, they can only depart from the standard method in exceptional circumstances under the government's national planning guidance. In fact, some authorities in the north of England have opted for a higher figure as part of an effort to boost economic growth. So the key changes appear to be, as you say, uh, additional constraints that council can cite in departing from the standard method, including taking account of an area's character and local density. Interestingly, Gove's letter also says inspectors would be required to take a more reasonable approach to authorities that come forward with plans that take account of the concerns of the local community, which um, I'm not sure exactly what concerns they might be, but that could mean lots of things. We can also expect more clarity and perhaps leeway on the exceptional circumstances that councils can depart from the standard method. In Gove's letter, he cites unusual demographic and geographic factors. And the comment about Greenbelt suggests that housing need may not justify changing Greenbelt boundaries via local plans. Okay. And um, what does he say about how local plans will be examined in the future? Yes, well, this is also very significant. He said in his letter to MPs that he would review how the soundness test for reviewing plans examination is operated by PINs. He said, I will ensure that plans no longer have to be justified, meaning there will be a lower bar for assessment and authorities will no longer have to provide disproportionate amounts of evidence to argue their case. So changes to the what's called the soundness test for local plans examination was floated in the planning white paper in 2020, but it was never carried forward into the um, levelling up and regeneration bill. So to explain what justified means, currently the MPPF states that plans are sound if they are 
positively prepared, justified, effective and consistent with national policy. And for plans to be justified, it says they have to be an appropriate strategy, taking into account the reasonable alternatives and based on proportionate evidence. So it looks like this element of how a local plan is found sound is, um, it looks like it might be dropped or, or changed significantly. And I can imagine that, that the, the fact you've got to show how reasonable alternatives being considered, that, that puts quite a big onus on an authority to demonstrate that. So if that requirement is being softened, I can see that would save local authorities' work, although whether it would provide a more robust plan is, is another matter. And what about housing land supply? So in his written ministerial statement, Michael Gove confirmed that the government will end the obligation on local authorities to maintain a rolling five-year supply of land for housing where their plans are up to date. So currently, local authorities have to be able to demonstrate a five-year supply of deliverable housing sites. He's saying where their plans are up to date, that will no longer be the case. In addition, councils with advanced emerging local plans so ones that have not yet passed examination, that can demonstrate constraints on housing land supply will have the amount of housing land supply they are required to show reduced from five to four years. And the government will also consult ending the requirements for authorities that under-deliver on housing to provide an additional 20% buffer of housing sites. So that's all quite radical. It doesn't just happen overnight as a result of Gove making a, a ministerial statement, as I understand it. So tell us about how these changes will be progressed. According to the written ministerial statement, Gove is going to set out more details on these changes in an upcoming national planning policy framework prospectus, which will be put out for consultation by Christmas. So that's something our readers can expect in the next week and a half, if it is put out before Christmas. So this MPPF prospectus, that was first mentioned last May when the um, the Leveling Up Bill was first published, and it said it would outline changes to the MPPF to accompany the planning changes in the bill. But it was originally scheduled to come out in the summer, and then now that's been put back until the end of the year. As well as all these changes around housing need and supply and plan making, what other changes did the government announce? Well, there was a whole lot more alongside what we've just talked about. There was what's called protections for new neighbourhood plans, a new planning performance framework, potential financial penalties for developers who fail to build out permissions, and alongside that measures to take into account the character of developers in the planning process. There was also, alongside that, as part of measures to clamp down on problems in areas with excessive second homes and holiday lets, reviewing the use classes order for places where this is a problem, such as Cornwall or Lake Districts, to control change of use to short-term lets if they wish. And just a, a, another announcement that would be of a lot of interest for our readers is consulting on proposals to increase planning fees, including doubling fees for retrospective applications where breaches of planning have occurred as soon as possible. Okay, so, uh, and the government said it's going to consult on the application fee increase? Yes, that's right, as soon as possible. Uh, Well, it's been long awaited, hasn't it? Yeah. Okay, and what about reaction to all of this? Well, it's, it's fair to say that the development sector has reacted pretty negatively to the changes around housing requirements or housing targets. So the Home Builders Federation, according to The Guardian, has said that 
it believes that as a result of the changes to local housing needs, 100,000 fewer homes could be built annually. And it quotes the HBF managing director as saying, it is inevitable that housing supply will fall dramatically as a result of the changes. So the Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, also accused the government of crippling house building and breaking electoral promise. But one body that did react positively to the news was the local government association, which said that they they welcomed the changes and said it's good the government has recognised that um, national formulas can never be a substitute for local knowledge and decision making by those who know their areas best. Right. Okay. Not massively surprising either set of responses. I I wonder if it's hard to gauge exactly how um, big an effect this will have on house building levels until we've seen the detail of what of what Gove's proposing, because either he's bought off the rebels by genuinely uh, giving them massive concessions, uh, which will allow local areas much more control over uh, how much housing is built in their areas, or he's um, made, which I think is possible, he's, he's made some tactical retreats without significantly... Um, altering the system and that thereby it may be that he's taken a little bit of heat out of the debate without um, completely surrendering the, the levers that he holds over uh, local authorities on on housing provision. Yes, clearly there's a lot of detail to come on these um, proposals, but I think they are even what's been said so far in the, the written ministerial statement and the letter to MPs is pretty significant. I think there's we're looking at some quite um, significant changes to the way local housing needs it is going to be calculated and certainly more leeway for councils to depart from their current housing requirements. And for many, that's going to be undershooting it, given the political pressures they face. OK, well, that's a big topic to cover off. We're running out of time, so uh, we're going to have to be fairly brief with some of the other important things, of which there have been several in, in the last couple of weeks. But uh, as we said earlier, there's been promised changes to the regime for onshore wind. What's the government said about this? Yes. Yeah, so that was also in response to an attempted amend to the levelling up bill, which attracted a lot of supporters from the Tory backbenches. So last week, the government proposed changing national planning policy to relax restrictions on building new onshore wind farms in England by removing what it called the overly rigid requirement for onshore wind sites to be designated in a local plan. Okay, and how's that different from the status quo? Well, the key change appears to be a relaxing of the requirement for sites to be designated in local plans. Just to quickly recap, the the Tory government tightened the planning rules for onshore wind in 2015 following its general election victory. David Cameron, Prime Minister at the time, was under pressure from backbenchers and the government said that onshore wind projects could only gain planning permission if they met two key criteria. Firstly, the proposed area must be identified as suitable for wind power in a local or neighbourhood plan, and the development has the backing of the local community. So the Housing Department made a statement saying that under the proposals, planning permission would be dependent on a project being able to demonstrate local support and appropriately address any impacts identified by the local communities. Local authorities would also have to demonstrate their support for certain areas as being suitable for onshore wind, moving away from rigid requirements for sites to be designated in local plans. So of these two elements, it's the designation in local plans that they're going to relax, but not the requirement for local community support. So it remains to be seen how much of a barrier that would be if these proposals go ahead. Okay, and very briefly, when are these changes likely to happen? 
so the government said it will consult on changes to the MPPF and how it will measure this local support by Christmas and concluded by the end of April 2023. So it looks like it will coincide with the planning for housing changes that we've just talked about. Okay. And then there was a third big planning announcement from the from the government that hit the headlines last week, which was the um, long-awaited decision on, on plans for a new coal mine in Cumbria. What was um, Michael Gove's justification for, you know, what's a very controversial decision? Yes, this has been a very uh, long-running saga with the council first approving the plans back in March 2019. And then they were called in by the government in 2021, uh, in the early part of last year. Michael Gove announced last week that he'd finally given the decision to go ahead. Basically, his conclusion was that the project's economic benefit outweighed its, in his words, unacceptable environmental impact, while the likely carbon emissions from the project were not significant. So uh, how have people uh, responded to that justification? Well, there's been a lot of predictable outrage from environmental groups. The Town and Country Planning Association has accused Gove of a shocking dereliction of duty in his decision, saying that it's going to undermine the UK's international commitments on reaching net zero by 2050. You also had the government's advisory body, the Climate Change Committee, saying this is a very bad decision. And you had the shadow levelling up secretary, Lisa Nandy, describing the decision as bad policy and bad politics, saying that the project was the equivalent of putting 200,000 more cars on the road every single year. Okay, well, many thanks for that, John. Uh, Of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. See you later to talk about the Reader's Choice, your popular story of the last couple of weeks with readers that didn't actually feature in that top three. But for now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive. See you later. Okay, well, now I need to make my way across to one of the corners of room 106, which is entirely dedicated to planning magazine material. Oh, I think I can see some familiar figures. Is that Joey Gardner, our special correspondent? Certainly is, Richard. Hi, good to see you. Good to see you, Joey. And Sam. Hi, Richard. Hi, Sam. So that's Sam Eckford, our uh, our reporter. And Joe, I think that's you? It is. Nice to see you. Hi, Joe. Uh, that's J- Joe Richardson, our uh, our editorial assistant. So, all of you have been spending a lot of time in the last few weeks looking at our um, consultancy market report. We published the first section of that on Friday, and we're going to be continuing to publishing it over, um, uh, well, this week and and, and coming days. But Sam, can I start with you? You've written a kind of overview of the findings. Can I ask you, was the year to September a good one for planning consultants? Yeah, it certainly was. Data provided by the respondents to our survey this year shows that the consultancy market grew by 14.8% in terms of fee income, which is a significant improvement on the last couple of years. In fact, last year, the market actually shrunk by half a percent. So um, it certainly has been a good period of time for consultants. Wow. Okay. How about in terms of employment? How has that changed over the past year? Yeah, so it's, it's also been a positive year for consultants in terms of employment too. So our survey shows that the number of chartered town planners working for firms employing two or more chartered planners 
has increased by 21% in the year to September 2022, compared to the previous 12 months. What about looking ahead? What are their views about that? That's slightly less positive. So just 10% of firms agreed that the economic climate for development will improve over the next 12 months. This is down from 78% last year. So it's quite a pessimistic outlook. Commentators attributed this to the continuing effects of COVID and Brexit, the rising levels of inflation and uncertainty around government reform. However, firms are optimistic about their own individual growth. So responding in early autumn 2022, firms predicted an average fee income growth rate of 8.8% over the next 12 months, and 60% of them agreed that their consultancy teams would grow over the next year. Okay, so that's it's slightly surprising, those findings, aren't they? Because they're saying it's a grim-looking market in the year coming ahead, but most of them are saying that they're going to grow as companies. Yes. How do they explain that apparent contradiction? So some say that they've taken a decision to target markets that are perhaps more reliable than others by diversifying their business, but there's no kind of clear, consistent reason why this might be the case. What about which sectors accounted for the most growth in the last year? So the commercial and industrial sector was one that grew by 24.2 million, according to our survey, over the last year. People attributed this to the ongoing trend uh, and increased demand for online shopping, which has led to an increase in certain types of storage sites, which has accounted for a lot of that growth. The housing market also grew significantly over the last year, both greenfield and brownfield. So the greenfield housing market grew by 42.2 million and the brownfield sector grew by 17 million, according to our survey. Okay. And what about predictions for next year in terms of which sort of sections of the of the market for planning advice people expect to grow the most? Again, here, the commercial and industrial sector and the housing greenfield sector are the two that really stand out. So the greenfield housing sector is expected to grow by around 10 million over the next year, and the commercial sector by 3.8 million. And any particular reasons given for why they're so confident about those two sectors? Yeah, so I mean, similar reasons to why those sectors have grown over the last year. In terms of housing, commentators highlighted an increasing interest in the use of urban land off the back of this increase in land values, and also an increase in strategic development opportunities, which has driven this. Okay, so moving on to the sort of looking at sort of individual firms, who are the biggest firms now featured in the survey? So in terms of the biggest employers of chartered town planners, Savills tops the list with 189 chartered town planners, followed by WSP with 164, Stantec with 154, and then Litchfields, Arup, Avison Young, follow them. Okay, so a couple of the firms that have made big acquisitions in, in the last year featuring prominently, I guess, so um, the WSP acquisition of, uh, of some of the parts of Capita, including GL Hearn. And, and Wood and um, the uh, Stantec acquisition of Barton Wilmore is sort of being borne out in the creation of more really big firms at the top of the list. Yes, exactly. And, th- and those are firms that experienced some of the fastest growth over the last year as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sam. Now, Joey, you've been looking at the biggest fee earners amongst these firms. Yes, indeed. And um, by far the biggest fee earner, uh, according to the data from the survey that we collected, was Arup, pulling in more than twice the fee income of the next highest consultant 
on the list with with 161.8 million in fee income. Uh, next on the list was Atkins with 72 million in fee income. And then newly placed in the list in third place was Stantec with 45 million in fee income. Following Stantec, then you have Pegasus Group, Savills, Litchfield, Montague Evans and Capita, followed by Tetratech and DLP, making up the 10 largest planning consultants. And in terms of who's showing the biggest rises, um, where have we seen the sort of biggest change in the past 12 months? By far the biggest change in income was the fee income growth shown at Stantec. And that, as you've already referred to, is largely driven by the acquisition of Barton Wilmore. Their fee income at Stantec grew, well, it essentially tripled. It grew from 15 million to 45 million in one year with that, you know, kind of huge transformative purchase effectively. The next largest proportional fee increases were in in much, much smaller consultancies. Smith & Jenkins had a 50% fee income rise. Lampro had a fee income rise of 43%. But there were a number of other fast growers amongst the larger companies on the list. Lambert Smith Hampton, Tetlow King and DLP all had increases of 20% or above. And Atkins and Litchfields, both in the top 10, also had significant growth of uh, around 10 to 15 percent. Atkins and Litchfields, who we spoke to for the feature, said the market was strong, essentially. That was the, the reason for their growth. It was organic rather than purchase-based growth. And they, they'd achieved that by branching into new areas, into new business areas, investing in new people, which obviously... Um, then brings in new fee income as, as people bring in new workload. Okay. And do they offer any insight into what some of those sort of new areas were or um, what kind of areas of activity were driving their growth? A lot mentioned, obviously, the strong housing market there had been in the year. But, I mean, Litchfield's, for example, their quote was, demand was consistently strong across the business. Housing, commercial, leisure sectors grown strongly across all regions. I think Atkins had 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 a particular focusing on growing in infrastructure areas. It had focused its water planning business and utilities infrastructure. You know, different firms have different focuses, but I think in the last year there has been, because of that overall growth in the market that you talked about earlier with Sam, there has been an an ability for firms to to grow with the market in this last year rather than just necessarily having to pick a particular growth sectors. What about next year? Who's the most confident about next year and who's the least confident and what explains the sort of difference in their in their outlooks? Well, there there is quite a disparity in, in views over the next year. In general, I think a lot of the larger firms are probably a bit more pessimistic because the view, I think, is that the economy as a whole clearly is going to be more challenged in the year ahead. And the larger you are, the harder it is for you to simply cherry pick very specific sectors, which might be doing better than other sectors and base your growth on on that. 
For example, DLP and Litchfield, both of whom have shown really strong growth in the last couple of years, are both now predicting essentially uh, zero growth for the next couple of years and are saying planning cannot be immune from the headwinds affecting the rest of the economy. You know, house builders are already signaling that they're starting to limit their activity in the light of what's happening in the market. However, there are a limited number of companies, probably about a third, that are expecting decent growth of, I would say, above 10% in the next couple of years, and a much smaller number that are expecting really quite significant growth. But those that are expecting much more significant growth, they're they're much more based on specific expansion plans to do with those particular firms and new markets that they want to move into, such as LUC moving into carbon management and other areas, and, and also ones which have more of a focus on local authorities, where it's expected, I think, that work might well be more resilient. That's interesting. It's certainly very notable how, how much Capita's um, local public service business has, has, has grown in the last year, isn't it? Well, indeed, I think the view there being that local authorities have statutory services that they have to provide and their their headcounts are, are so stripped back now that unfortunately they a lot of them have little choice but to bring in consultants for a lot of the tasks that they have to um, carry out. Okay, and you also looked at fee rates. How have they changed over the past year and and how do people think they're going to change in in, in the coming year? Uh, Median fee rates have increased by 5% in the last year. And the interesting prediction in, in a way, given everything I've just said about the market, is that actually the prediction is that we're going to have another 5% median fee rate increase in the year ahead. However, there appears to be a kind of subtle difference in the kind of reasoning behind those those rate changes from last year to this year. And I would say there's not a clear confidence across the sector that the sector is going to be able to achieve a 5% fee income rise in the year ahead. There are a lot of firms that think that that expectation of further fee income rises this current coming year is a little bit optimistic in the environment. But I think the broad view is that last year, consultants were on average able to rise, increase rates based on the strength of the market and in part upon the need to attract staff as well. The prediction ahead is that the market will be weaker and it's less a reflection of that, but more simply just a reflection of the rising cost base and the general inflation out there in the general economy and therefore rising pay demands from staff and the need to be able to accommodate that without completely destroying your margin as a business. However, as I've said, despite that, not all firms think that it's going to be possible and not all firms think that clients will essentially wear that in the year ahead. Fantastic. Well, that's that's really interesting, Joey. And um, your article on this is going to be coming out later this week. So uh, people who are interested in that can um, read about it in detail on planning resource as they can with Sam's overview of the findings of the survey. Joe, you've been looking at the jobs market in consultancy and what the survey tells us about that. I know you've been looking at a number of areas, but one thing I particularly wanted to ask you about, because there seem to be some quite dramatic findings was about employment of 
students and licentiates in planning consultants? Uh, yeah, well, as of 1st of September, the top four stands at Savills, Capita, Litchfields and Bidwells, with um, Savills currently employing 77 students and licentiates. Capita currently employing just under that with 60, Litchfields at 40 and Bidwells at 12. Okay, and did they explain why they employ such significant numbers? Yeah, they did. Savills described it as a consistent strategy over the last three or four years to increase their graduate intake and described it as a slow build, but a definite strategy for growth. And Litchfield's also described it as a long-term strategy and said that nurturing their own talent was part of their DNA. Okay, so those are the biggest employers of, of students and licentiates, but are companies increasing or are some companies increasing their numbers of students and licentiates significantly? Yeah, they are. Over the last year, Capita has seen an extremely high growth in the number of students licentiates with a 200% rise from the 20 they employed the year before, while Savile has also increased its number by around 75% from 44 to 77. Bidwell's recorded just one student licentiate on 1st of September 2021, and that's a figure which has increased to 12 a year later. So that's a it may not be a massive number, but it is quite a high increase considering their previous number. Those are all really significant uh, proportionate increases. Do they offer an explanation of what's behind this? They do. Savills attributed their growth to a limited talent pool in planning, saying that the increase is a deliberate policy on their part, given the scarceness of plan professionals. Capita also attributed their increase to a continuation of trends such as recruitment difficulty, but also attributed their increase to an increase in entry-level workload over the past year, adding that they've placed more graduates in the Manchester and Belfast offices in particular to meet increasing levels of demand for more entry-level development management work. Okay, so there's clearly loads of councils who need junior planners and capitals have sort of increased that area of their business, it, it sounds like. Yeah, it would appear so. Okay, well, thanks very much, Joe. And um, all of those details, plus quite a lot more data about the uh, jobs market and planning consultancy will be in uh, your report which is uh, uh, due out in the coming week so uh, people are interested in that again that can be found at um, planningresource.co.uk later in the week thank you very much to all of you i hope you managed to uh, get out of room 106 uh, well before christmas and we will uh, maybe see you in the new year thanks richard merry christmas thanks see you in the new year thanks richard Okay, now to find John again so he can select his story of the week that's really uh, fired the interest of our audience but didn't feature amongst the uh, the top three earlier on. Ah, there he is. John, tell us about this story. So this is a story that was one of our five most read articles of the past fortnight and it's about a council, Nuneaton and Bedworth Council in Warwickshire, that's announced it will lower the housing requirement in its draft local plan by 16%, which equates to 1,500 homes. And it's used data from the 2021 census to justify this. Okay, really interesting. So presumably there are going to be other authorities following that lead later on. Watch this space. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Fantastic. That's another fortnight summarised. 
Yes, we'll be back in the second week of January to update you on the key things that have happened in the sector in the intervening four weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. Thanks for listening and have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you all. Goodbye.